For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put, on his, and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gale, or with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed with, they placed with written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right hand and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When when he had said this, he breathed his last. At noon, in the middle of a Friday, the sun stopped shining. Just as the faith of those who followed Jesus receded like waves at the turning tide, even the sun failed to keep it shining. This wasn't a darkness that was just literal, but it was a darkness that existed in the minds of all those present who were unable to apprehend what had just happened and that any hope yet remained. Peter denied Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus. The disciples deserted Jesus. Pilate could not claim Jesus, and the Jews could not see Jesus. 
It was clear that even the disciples were not able to see what he was doing. I want you to see what he says in Luke 18 to them. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. In verse 34 says, The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. As plain as it was, they did not know. You see, when Jesus, when, when Lazarus died, Jesus wept. But the hope in Jesus was that he knew that he would raise him from the dead. Now, I don't know what the disciples expected, but clearly they did not expect this, and they did not expect, they did not have a hope that was remaining. Now, I have a Meemaw who is in the final, likely the final years of her life. And in my mind, uh, Meemaw, she still sings, like if you're around her, she just sings hymns. That's, that's like the thing that, the, like the last thing keeping her to this world is just sitting there listening to her sing hymns. And in my mind, when Meemaw prays, mountains move. But there were no Meemaw prayers or prophet words that led forward into some sort of hope of Saturday. God's strength alone was left to accomplish His work. Is it unsettling to think that all the prayers in the world and all the thinkers and all the theologians and all the wise men in the world missed this most important event and all its meaning, even though Jesus made it very clear this is what He was to do? Or maybe you're one of those that you would say, ah, but relationship, those in relationship. But it seems clear that even those in relationship missed this prediction. Why? Why? When Jesus tells them he is going to die, we see multiple times this same statement in the New Testament where it says the disciples did not understand what he was saying. And Jesus says specifically here, he says that it was hidden from them. It was hidden from them. Hidden is not often a word that we think about when we look at this crucifixion that was done on a hill for everyone to see. The reason that the Romans um, had apprehended this torture device and put it on a hill was so that everyone could see that if you challenge the authority, this is what happens to you. So hiddenness isn't the word that we think about. Darkness isn't the word that we think about. And I want to remind you of another time, just as the sun gave way, I want to remind you of another time the world laid in darkness. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Just where Jesus ended, the world began. In mystery and darkness, with God alone, 
knowing the way forward. Just as the Spirit hovered over emptiness and formlessness, the Spirit tears the veil of man's understanding in a temple to once again hover at the dawn of new creation. You know, I don't know if you've known this about human beings, but we are really triggered when our expectations are not met. (laughs) Maybe it's just me. We don't like the dark. We don't like the hidden. But, But I think it was God who designed the surprise of this beauty. We could, we could blame it on the disciples' lack of faith. We could say that they weren't listening well or they weren't paying attention right. And maybe there's some truth to those things. But maybe this father, as a master creative, hid his most beautiful surprise for those he loved in plain sight for all to see. Even Jesus' words on the cross carry this incredible hidden beauty. Just to reference one, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which on the surface seems to express the sentiment of everyone else, the mood. But contrary to what we sung today, I know it's in the song and Christ alone is a great song, but I don't believe that God turned his face from Jesus. I want to read to you a few excerpts from the Psalm 22 that Jesus is clearly referencing when he makes the statement on the cross. Psalm 22 verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. But if we continue to read, we see a hidden beauty Psalm 22.8 says, he, trust, he trusts in the Lord. They say, let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him. Those were words penned by David, but they were the very words that people stated as Jesus went to Calvary. Psalm 22.16-18 says, A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Just as the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothes. Finally, my favorite little piece of Psalm 22, which makes it clear to me, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. But he has listened to his cry for help. In the moment that Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What does it say? He breathed his last. You know, even the executioner is looking upon him like he should he he shouldn't already be dead like they normally had to break the bones of people because they would resist and struggle till the end but Jesus gave his life into the hands of his father 
You see, it was not God that turned his face from Jesus. It was man who could not look upon him because the beauty remained hidden. Why would God go to the trouble of hiding everything in plain sight, the most profound and impeccable truth in all of human history? Well, there is really nothing more than we love than a surprise. And God loves to surprise those He loves. Now, I'm not just making this up because Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter and to search out the matter is the glory of kings. Now, we started this day talking about a love that surpasses knowledge. And Proverbs invites us to lean not on our own understanding. So I want to ask you a question that applies to this morning, and it applies to every part of our life with God. Are you still willing to be surprised by the beauty of God, or have you allowed your faith to be contained by your understanding like a temple curtain that needs to be torn. Because He is a God of surprise. He is a God of hidden beauty. Laid in darkness as the sun could no longer shine. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Early on the first day of the week while it was still dark Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached him first. He bent over and looked at the stripes of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Verse 21 of John chapter 20 says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. See, Mary ran looking for who took Jesus, and Peter left the tomb. But the disciple John walked in and saw an empty tomb. 
And I want us to understand that all he saw, all he saw was an empty tomb. Verse 8 says, he saw and believed. He saw and believed, for they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. For Mary, Jesus came and consoled her. And for Thomas, he let him put his hands in the in, in his holes in his hands and in the piercing of his side. But John looked on an empty tomb, and the word says he saw and he believed. His belief came before. His understanding. This is not a gospel that centers on your understanding. This is not a gospel that centers on your understanding. It centers on the work of a man who by the power of God lived a sinless life, healed men, told the truth of God, and died on Calvary and arose From an empty tomb. He was alive. And John knew it. Not by the presence of Jesus before him. But by the absence of him in the grave. While it was still dark in the morning. John believed. John didn't come to faith by completing the last puzzle piece so that he could understand. He looked at an empty grave and he believed. In Genesis 1-3, it says, As darkness covered the earth, the Spirit hovered there. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And whenever light flooded that empty tomb in the morning, there stood a believer, probably the first believer in Jesus, whose mind and heart was flooded with light as the dawning sun came before him. He did not know it when he looked at that empty tomb, but new creation had begun. Because Luke 8.17 tells us something that Jesus and the Father always do. For there is nothing hidden. There is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed. And nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out in to the hope. What was hidden on the cross was revealed in His resurrection. Jesus was alive. Jesus is alive. And He is risen. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered... They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces on the ground. 
But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered these words. What was revealed at the tomb? What was revealed at the tomb? What happened at the tomb was that light broke through the night and it became day. God began his work of making all things new. In Revelation chapter 21, it says, I am going to make all things new, that I will wipe away every tear from every eye, that there will be more death, there will be no more mourning, there will be no more crying, because the old things are gone. He does those because he says that he is the end and the beginning, and to the thirsty he will give without cost the spring of the water of life. The prophet Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah 65, talks to us about a new heavens and a new earth. These aren't things that have yet come to pass. But what happened on the day that Jesus rose from the grave is that all the former things began to fade and the work of His new creation began. God is making all things new. In this kingdom of new creation, He offers the forgiveness of sins, the healing of sickness, the covering of brokenness. But there is one central promise of this covenant with Jesus and man. And it is the most central. He gives us the gift of His Holy Spirit. More than even forgiveness that we sing about, The foundational promise of this new covenant is that God gives us the gift of His very self. He tears a veil so that the Spirit can come and arrest and abide with men. Because that every good thing, and when I mean every, I mean every, every good thing that is within this kingdom, is accessed through His Spirit. In our morning prayer, we pray this every day. You are always near. You are always good. In our prayer of confession, we say, God, You are good. God, You are present. The Holy Spirit, the nearness of God, is the central gift that Jesus gives us. No one has to be alone, to feel unloved, to feel lost, because He is near and He wants to be near. Amen. What was hidden in the cross was revealed in the resurrection. And what was revealed in the resurrection is poured out into our lives by the very Spirit of God. It is poured out into our lives. 
Now, listen. Years ago, the church made this decision about Easter. I joked with my friend a couple days ago, say, if you come to Easter, we're going to give $100 and puppies to everybody. And we made, a, we, made a jo- we made a point that we were not going to make Easter a marketing event to get as many people as we could in the room. The other thing that we decided in a, is that we don't believe that the salvation of God comes through some transactional prayer where we sign a deal and get in or get out. Are you with me? The reason and the the way that we approach Easter is to tell the story of Jesus to each other. Because the story of Jesus is not completed. We don't live at the end of the story. We live in the middle of the story. Everything that was started as light broke through in the resurrection day, we are looking forward to as Jesus comes. Everything that He wants to do to heal this earth, to bring about His righteousness, to bring about His love, His care, His concern, His mercy, His justice for the poor, every one of those things, we're still in the middle of that story. Hebrews says that Jesus sits in heaven awaiting for his enemies to be made a footstool. Now, how is that story fulfilled? Was fulfilled by Jesus, but it's also fulfilled by us living a life full of resurrection power by the Spirit. We are not here to tell a story. We are here to embody a story. We're here to become this story. Romans 8, 11-14 says, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. He is risen. And He is alive. And we have been made to come alive. 